goodness. Um, <clears throat> almost everything Papa Walt said there was true. I'll let you just pick which part you think might be a lie. <laughs> um, you know, Jana and I we were riding in this morning with our kids, and she just asked, she goes, hey, you're... <laughs> How you feeling? You feel emotional about today? I've been praying for you. I was like, I feel fine. I feel completely fine. And then I got here, and I saw the first face I saw. I thought, I'm going to lose it today. Good grief. Like, the amount of emotions you can feel for people is incredible. Um, and having been away for, I don't know, we moved in 2013, I think, 2012, uh, away from Noonan up to Seattle. And... Um, it's a little different in Seattle. You might have seen us on the news a few times over the last year. <laughs> um, it really is, it is remarkable to come back and see uh, familiar faces and then so many new faces. Uh, how special you are. So, <clears throat> uh, I call him Papa Walt. He, he showed up, uh, my dad passed away in 2009, just before uh, our daughter Tove was born. And Walt and Sharon came uh, to Four Corners when we were in the bar, and uh, we, we met and connected instantly. And uh, he's, he stepped in and has served as a dad to me in so many ways over the years, and he's become invaluable to me. And uh, Dr. Sellers has also invested in me tremendously. In fact, that book, Reckless Love of God, uh, I didn't really know what a prepositional phrase was. I didn't know what a run-on sentence was. I didn't know, I didn't know so much stuff, okay? And like, so she sat down lovingly. The book's in print because the woman invested tremendously in me. Uh, my dyslexia and my ADD <laughs> was not easy. And so uh, anyway, it is an honor to be here. Uh, Papa Walt, he asked me if I would just share just a, a, a snippet of how our church actually came into being. And so here's a little bit of the background of, of Four Corners Church. Uh, in 2006, I was living here in Noonan, and uh, I, had, I was in seminary, and I'd gone over to, to Oxford, and I was very much so not interested in serving the local church. Uh, I enjoyed theology, and so I was doing a specialization in historical Jesus research. Uh, you might hear about the historical Jesus around Easter time every year on the, on the History Channel, and essentially the big ideas come out is that there's a Jesus that belongs to history, and then there's the guy called the Christ of the faith that the church created later. And they're not really the same person. And I was so intrigued by that going, wow. So there's a historical Jesus. And then there's the kind of the make-believe Jesus that the church believes in. And I was so intrigued by that idea. And so I was overseas studying that idea and the debates that went back and forth. And I began to believe, I think, no, the Jesus of history is in fact the Christ of our faith. And that the Christ of faith is not make-believe, but is truly rooted in history. And so as I started to read the Gospels with this, a newer lens, I started to notice certain phrases about Jesus himself that began to change me. Uh, and the phrase in Matthew's Gospel that says, uh, he was a friend of sinners jumped off the page and leapt into my heart in a way that it, it, it changed my life. I came back to the U.S. 
I, I scrolled through my phone. It wasn't really a phone that you scroll through, but you remember you would punch through it or whatever it was at the time. Uh, and I looked in my phone and I realized all of my friends looked like me, thought like me, talked like me, believed like me, didn't really challenge me. Uh, I, in the end, wasn't really a friend of sinners. If and so I grew deeply convicted over that reality. I was cordial to people. I wasn't like a jerk to people. But nonetheless, if you, I didn't spend time with people that didn't know Jesus. I just didn't. It wasn't a priority to me. It didn't matter to me. I, the people out there, if they come in here and they hear about the gospel, great. But other than that, it wasn't much of a, a deep burden for me. Well, that phrase, friend of sinners, started to keep me up at night. And so I told Jana, I got to change. We got to make some changes and so I had been serving as an intern at a church not far away, and I went and quit my job. Um, I got a job as a substitute teacher in which I reaped everything I sowed in high school. So <laughs> that was fun. Um, I was a day laborer on Highway 16. I would stand out on Saturday mornings at the Marathon gas station, if it's still there. Um, and I would be the only gringo uh, standing there waiting on a dude in a big white truck to come pick me up to go dig ditches and do day labor. And in the afternoons throughout the week, after getting off from subbing, I would go to the Alamo bar on the square, and I was a bar back which means I, when you could smoke inside, my job was to sweep up cigarettes, change out kegs, do inventory, and just be a runt. And it was in that place in the Alamo where I found myself um, talking to people about Jesus that had no interest in Jesus or the church. And they were in that place because they had been to church and found out, I guess I don't make the cut. And so I had an opportunity day after day to share the good news. And so after several months, one evening I was cleaning the men's restroom. <laughs> we come from the, it's humble when you start talking substitute teaching and cleaning the men's room. Uh, one evening, cleaning the men's room. Uh, I believed God showed me something. And I don't use those words loosely. But in a very real sense, I had more or less a dream or a vision of seeing that bar filled with people worshiping Jesus, baptizing, and all the rest. And I had no idea because nobody else around was a Christian, but it was like God let me in on something. I'm going to do something. Just believe. Like, all right, like a Father Abraham kind of moment. Like, okay, <laughs> I don't know what to do with this. So I went to Jana, got home that night, told her, hey, I think we're going to plant a church in the Alamo. She's like, really? Do they know that? I'm like, no. And... um and then I went to my friends, Jared Autry and Brian Eden and Keith Catralla, and I told these guys, guys, I know we're about to pack up and move to London to do more schooling, but I think when I'm done with school in England, I think we're going to start a church in the bar. Like, 
Go, okay, bro. Well, we'll pray. We're with you. And so over the course of time away in Europe, I would call these guys on Skype or whatever, the, the video conference, and we would just pray and talk about it and had like a little core group meeting at Keith's house. And um, I wrapped up school, got back to Noonan, Jana's old boss uh, at Coweta Dentistry, one of the dentists, owned a house on Roscoe Road and said, uh, hey, you guys are moving back. Do you need a place to live? We're like, yeah, we're broke grad student, you know, like, of course. All right, well, I've got a house. You can just stay there. Like, great, that's in the budget. <laughs> so we moved into our little house on Roscoe Road. Um, and the first weekend, we went to Taste of Noonan, the thing on the square, and we were walking around, and my friend Amy, that owned the Alamo, saw me, and they, she, they called me Johnny back in the day, Johnny Jihad, because I had a big, gnarly beard. And um, <laughs> so I was walking by the Alamo, and Amy came out and said, Johnny. And I said, hey, Amy. She said, what are you doing back? I said, yeah, you know, I'm done with school. And she said, um, somebody told me that you wanted to start a Bible study or something somewhere. I said, I do. She said, where are you going to do it? I said, well, I'm going to have some friends over on Sunday to my house. She said, cool, can I come? I was like, totally, <laughs> yes, you can come to my house for Bible study this Sunday. So that morning, 45 people showed up in my house, and she asked, can I bring some friends? I was like, for sure you can bring friends. And so we started that week at my house with 45 people jammed into our little house at our dentist let us live in for free for the first few months. And um, that afternoon, we were having a barbecue at Amy's, and she said, that house was packed today. I said, yeah. And she goes, you're going to have to find a bigger spot. And right then, I was like, I'm cashing in. I was like, why don't you just give me the Alamo? She said, in the bar? It stinks like cigarettes in there. I was like, yeah. Can we just meet there? She said, well, yeah, sure. I said, well, what do you want for it? She was, oh, nothing. You're just going to talk about Jesus in there? I was like, just like today. <laughs> she was like, great. And she took the key off her little key ring. It's like, here you go. And so we were just sitting there going, all right, I guess we're having church in the bar next week. Woohoo! And like, that was it. We moved into the Alamo the next week, and the church took off from there. And so we met from there from one to two to three services to eventually moving over to Goza Motors. And then after about six, seven, eight months of being in Goza, uh, I realized that my leg as serving as the lead pastor at Four Corners was done. I didn't know that was coming, uh, but realized, oh, I think that was, that was my job, was to get us through, to have elders in place. And, and over the years, we saw many people come to know Jesus and people being baptized in a horse trough in the bar. Some of you were there and remembered some of that stuff. They were great. And beautiful, glorious days. And I look back on those days with incredible fondness. And I'm pretty sure that some faces here today are looking at me going, yeah, man, I remember those. Those were some great days. And here's one thing I'd want to encourage those that might be tempted to romanticize the past. Just to remind you that nostalgia and anxiety are two sides of the same coin. We can romanticize the past in such a way 
that the present moment is emptied of its power and wonder and creativity and beauty. And we can worry about the future in the same way, and it has that same effect. The gift of God is the present moment. This is all we have. God only gives us to himself in the present. He was and is to come, but our experience is only in the is. (laughs) So what I want to remind you to do as faithful followers of Jesus is to really be present. Show up to your life. Show up to your church. Show up to your children. Show up to your marriages. Show up at work in a way with real purpose and intentionality because this is all you got. And do it to the glory of God. All right, so there's a little bit of the story. I'm gonna preach the gospel now from Luke chapter 15. It is the best part of the Bible and you can't beat it. I know it's all inspired, but you can't get any better than Jesus's home run on the prodigal son, the lost sheep, the lost coin. It doesn't get any better than that. So I wrote four pages of notes as an intro. I'll read my manuscript and then I'll just break away from that. But I I need it just for this moment. Four Corners Church was planted and is being sustained not by the labor of our hands, but by the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one that plants churches. Jesus is the one that gets all the credit. Jesus is the one why we are gathered. We are gathered in his name and he is with us now. The gospel is for every one of you in this room right now. The gospel is for those who have been crushed by the weight of legalism. It's for those who have tried and tried to earn the favor of God by relentless church attendance, diligent Bible studies, unbroken prayer, and tithing. The gospel is for those who have been content to warm themselves by the fire of God's love, but have never had the nerve to step into his fire and be utterly consumed. The gospel is for those who think that Jesus loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so, is somehow elementary. The gospel is for those people who went to seminary and think they know more than God. The gospel is for those who get baptized or go forward every two or three years because it didn't take last time. (laughs) That means if you're Baptist, the gospel's for you. All right. (laughs) I can say that I grew up Baptist. All right. I got saved every other week. All right. The gospel's for those who leave their Bible in the backseat of their car all week to wither up in the sun. The gospel is for those in here right now who think they've gone too far and that you've committed the unpardonable sin, whatever that is. The gospel is for the guilt-ridden and the shamed who think they've tapped out all of the grace of God and you find it amazing that God didn't smoke you on the way into church this morning. The gospel's for the promiscuous, the vagabond, the throwaway, the not good enough, the overachiever, the insolent, the angry, the forgotten, and the brokenhearted. 
The gospel is for those who find themselves safe in the arms of Abba, walking closely with Jesus, full of the Spirit, obeying his commandments. The gospel is for the busy professor, student, stay-at-home mom, or workaholic. The gospel is for the tired preacher and the even more tired preacher's kid. It is for cage fighters. It is for gamers. It is for hunters. It is for police officers. It's for athletes. It's for the Christian who knows that Jesus is Lord and King in Christ, but hasn't dared to accept his brotherhood or enter into his most endearing term, becoming the beloved of God. The gospel is for those who have become too familiar with God and have lost any sort of reverence before him. It's for those who call God creator, but won't call him Abba because that word makes you blush. It's for those who have relegated God to the outskirts of your mind and have confined him to places in which you only commune with him when convenience or tragedy occurs. The gospel's for people who only show up at Christmas and Easter. The gospel is for black people and white people and brown people. Tove, our daughter, used to say, I just wish we were all purple. They, the gospel would be for purple people too. The gospel is for everyone who is made in the image of God. It is for the wealthy. It is for the impoverished. It's for the homosexual. It's for the heterosexual. It's for the friendless, the divorced, the addict, the cheater, the drunk, the high. It's for the drug dealer. It's for the image obsessed. It's for those who are already falling asleep in church today. It's for you too, bro. <laughs> when you wake up, it's still good. <laughs> you see, the only way into Jesus' choir is to sing off key. The only way into God's family is to own the fact that we really don't deserve to be there. And the only way to abide in the presence of the Holy Spirit is to accept that you are accepted. This is the gospel. It's God's announcement that you are loved before you repent, before you take communion, before you confess your sins, before you do a single work or are baptized or memorize John 3.16. You are loved. You are loved not only on the best day of your life, but your worst. It's God's kindness that will lead you to repentance. And it's God's kindness that draws you into right and a loving and saving relationship with himself. What I just spent a few minutes saying is what some would call scandalous or over the top. And it is for God to look at us on our worst day with all our fists shaking and defiance and pride and ego and greed and lust and all the rest, and for God to respond to our evil with Good Friday is unheard of. Islam has nothing on this. Postmodern secularism, humanism, philanthropy, any idea, nobody has anything like this good news. This is good news. So, 
If you're not a follower of Jesus today and you happen to be in here this morning, God loves you. And if you've known Jesus for 50 years and you think he might be a little bored with you or disappointed that you're not a little further along in your sanctification, God loves you. For those who feel like the fire is just a flicker, just still just barely hanging on because of your doubt and your skepticism and all the rest, the good news is here to put wind in the sail again. Okay, Luke 15, if you mark your Bible, when you find the Bible repeating words, mark those, it's important. So all throughout Luke chapter 15, the words that are repeated are joy, rejoice, received, found, repents, and celebrate. This is gonna be really great. Okay, Luke chapter 15, Jesus is in the middle of his earthly ministry and he's not fitting any of the conventional boxes that everybody wanted the Messiah to show up and do. He's running with the wrong crowd over and over and over again and it's upset a few religious people who think that the Messiah should be behaving in a few different ways. And so Jesus has now found himself at a dinner party, and this is the best. All right, Luke 15, verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Now, tax collectors and sinners, these are two people groups. Tax collectors, it's not like our IRS. The tax collectors were people, I mean, nobody's a big fan of tax day, I get it, Um, The tax collectors in this situation were people that had betrayed Israel, their own nation state, were hired out by the Roman government to overtax their own people. They were scumbags. They were the lowest of the low. Nobody wants anything to do with a tax collector. That people group, tax collectors, and sinners. When we use the word sinners in a modern evangelical way, it's It can be thrown around. Sin, it can be a word that's very generic. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's very true. Uh, But the way this word here also defined a people group, sinners. As you read the Gospels, you'll notice there's the clean and the unclean, the insider and the outsider, the righteous and the unrighteous, the holy and the sinners. The sinners were a people group. And it was well known to their religious community. Those two parties were drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees, which that phrase literally means, the word Pharisees, it means literally religious separatists. Maybe you've met one. Um, The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. The word receives here means literally he warmly welcomes. What's that? He warmly welcomes outsiders, unclean, unregenerate, rebellious people who intentionally break the commandments of God and they're looking at him going, this man warmly welcomes these wretched people. What would it look like to warmly welcome people who don't know Jesus into the family of God? Jesus warmly welcomes tax collectors and sinners and he eats with them which is not a big deal in our culture that we have 
you don't have to believe the same things to have a business lunch. We're just here about to, you know, get through our next objective, close the next deal, move on. Having a meal over lunch, it doesn't say anything sacred, does it? Well, not really in our culture, but in this culture and in many honor-shame cultures around our world, to dine with somebody is a statement of acceptance and it's a statement of friendship and it's a statement of saying, we have a few things in common. To have a meal with somebody is to say, I'm welcoming you into a sacred space in my home. So if I were to have you into my home in Seattle and we were to sit down at the dinner table, you'd go, yeah, this is special. But if I said, hey, make yourself at home, and you walked into my bedroom and sat down on my bed, I would look at you like, hey, this is actually sacred over here. That's how they thought of the dining room. This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So Jesus decides to tell some stories. <laughs> would you guys like to hear some stories? I see some of you don't like my friends, so I'll tell you guys a couple stories since you're so grumpy about my company. I love this. It's not passive aggressive, but it's pretty. Anyway, before we jump, yeah, here we go. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The big idea is, going, why chase after one? You got 99 more. And the shepherd would look at you and go, because it's mine. You must not understand how I feel about my sheep. Next parable. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice in me, for I found the coin that I'd lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You ever lost something utterly invaluable to you and then found it? A few years ago, my mom was visiting in Seattle about four years ago, and she had misplaced her wedding rings. She had taken them off to clean or wash her hands or something, but she had taken her rings off, and we had gone out throughout the day. We had gone to Schmetzer's, a soccer store. We'd gone to the grocery. We'd been all throughout the city. She got home and went, Alex, I can't find my rings. And Jana and I are going, oh, no. So we're racing around. We're going back to Schmetzer's. We're going back to the grocery. We're looking everywhere in the parking lots on the, uh, on the sidewalk. And we're looking everywhere. And we give up and we go back home. And we're just like, well, maybe they're in the house. We're tearing our little house apart <laughs> going, there's no, there's no way she lost her rings. And my mom goes, you know, I'll be okay. They're just rings. They're the most important things to me, but... At the end of the day, they're just things, but you could see the pain on her face, and you could see it, and I was getting sicker and sicker by the minute, and then from downstairs, you hear, "Woo!" <laughs> you go, I found them, 
And she came running up the stairs singing, good, good father. I mean, she was losing her mind. And we rejoiced. That is exactly how God feels when, he say, when Jesus is describing this story here. He's going, God sweeps heaven and earth, will move every couch cushion, will flip the tables over. He has moved everything to get to his people. Did you know the day that Jesus found you, that's what was going on inside him? That in heaven, that's what it sounds like is, woo! Somebody was, met their creator. Somebody came to repentance. Somebody came to life. That's good news. That's the heart and posture of God toward those of us who are the lost coin under a couch cushion. God loves you, church. Now the best story. And then he said, in case all the grumpy religious guys weren't getting how God feels, here's one for you. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give to me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. For the younger one to, by the way, walk up and just say to his dad, while living, I'd like to go ahead and have my inheritance now, please. <laughs> it's his way of saying, and this is in an honor-shame culture, it's his way of saying, I don't want you, I want your stuff. Your life doesn't matter much to me. Just give me what I got coming. I don't, I, I don't care if you're living or dead. It's as heartless as it can possibly be. So he breaks the father's heart and the father breaks the piggy bank and says, okay, okay, I'll let you go. So he divided the property. Not many days later, the, son, the younger son had gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. By the end of the parable, we understand what kind of recklessness he got into. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine in that country arose and he began to be in need. One of my friends recently pointed out that in developing countries, this is the most shocking part of the parable. You and I, if we miss lunch, we get hangry. <laughs> don't we? Some of you might be hangry right now. But in a developing country, someone would read this and go, oh, famine? Oh, this is, it does, that's the end. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to, to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So like we said a moment ago, in an honor-shame culture, we have a Jew now among the Gentiles, among the pigs, the unclean, eating out of the garbage can, and all the religious people said, amen. 
you reap what you sow, brother. Hmm. Serves you right. You are ungrateful. You are rude. You're unkind. And you've wasted your dad's money. Serves you right. After all, God's just. But Jesus isn't telling a story about justice right now, is he? Because Jesus isn't into karma, Jesus is into grace. So the story carries on. By the way, if the story stopped right there, that'd be fine. Wouldn't it? The kid went out and made a wreck of himself, and that's what you get, man. But Jesus moves on. But when he came to himself, comes to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And this is perhaps the the saddest part of the Bible. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I sinned against heaven and before you. So far, so good. Here's the saddest verse in the Bible. I'm no longer worthy to be called son. Excuse me. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's the saddest verse in the Bible. And you know why? Because every one of us can relate to that reality. Everybody wants to work for God. It's easy to be an employee. But God is not a cosmic CEO in the sky hiring employees. He wants a job. Don't call me your own. Change my last name. Do what we got to do. Just treat me like a day laborer that works here on your farm. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And in some sense, he was right. I'm really not. And then the best verse in the Bible follows the worst. (laughs) And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The Jesus Storybook Bible translates this better than the English standard version that I'm reading from this morning. The Jesus Storybook Bible translates it literally. And he fell on his neck and he could not stop kissing him. That's the Greek. So the father sees the son who's completely blown it, feels compassion which in the Greek is a fun word to say, and I hope you can say it with me. It's splachnitsomai. Want to try it? One, two, three, splachnitsomai. All right. And if you have a study Bible, there'll be an asterisk there, and you go down to the bottom, and you look at it, and the word splachnitsomai, it will say something like splachna, a Greek word meaning bowels, guts, intestines, entrails. And you're like, that is weird. Why does it say splachnitsomai? Why is this the word for compassion? Here's why. Because in the Western world, in the English world, we tend to talk about, I love you with all of my heart. 
But at the middle of the, the emotional life of the Hebrew man or woman, it's in your guts because it's here where the deepest feelings of rage or anger or joy or love all come from deep down within and you can feel something welling up within you. That's what's going on. So when the father sees his boy on the horizon coming home, the father's gut was literally wrenched going, ah, I remember counting his 10 fingers and 10 toes. I remember giving him his name. I remember all the birthday parties and all the mundane moments. I taught him to fish. I taught him how to tie his sandals. I love this boy. Deep, gut-wrenching compassion. In Isaiah 49, the people of God were in Babylonian captivity and indulging in Babylonian lifestyles. And God's response to them was, Beloved, behold, I have engraved your names on the palms of my hands. Why would God write your name on the palms of his hands? So that you might see where you belong. His hands are open to you, inviting you. His hands are not folded. He doesn't have his dukes up. He's not bored with you with his hands in his pockets. His hands are open to people who are in deep rebellion saying, see, this is your name. This is where you belong. Jeremiah 33, is Ephraim not my darling child? For as often as I have to speak to him, my heart yearns for him still. Hosea chapter 11, out of, out of Egypt, I called my son. And if you go read Hosea 11, what does it say? It's that beautiful image. And you moms and dads know this moment where you train your toddler how to walk. It says that they, I, I taught Israel how to walk. Meaning, as you remember them wrapping their little fingers around your fingers and you're walking around the living room and teaching them how to walk, that was God's heart posture toward his people in the book of Hosea, who had gone wildly astray, God's first gut reaction toward his rebellious children is not, you're in big trouble. His first reaction is a memory. I know who you really are. I know how you got into the muck you got yourself into. And God's first reaction toward rebellious children is not, I'm coming down there like Thor with a hammer. It is always, oh, I remember teaching you how to walk. I remember your first birthday. I'm coming for you, baby. That's God's heart again and again toward his people. So the father felt compassion, ran toward him, which is not what men do. You don't hike up your stuff and take off running. Greeks do that kind of thing. We Hebrew people walk and pay attention to God. But this father loses what looks like all of his dignity, races toward his son, falls on his neck, and cannot stop kissing him. Please don't ever miss Luke 15, verse 20. You're going to need it. We all do. And perhaps you might know a friend or family member right now that's walked away from God. And they're living a lifestyle 
that completely contradicts all the commandments and all the things that we know that God calls of us. And yes, there is judgment and there is accountability and all the rest. But don't forget the compassionate heart of the Father toward those who are in the muck on their worst day. If you have a kid far from God right now, this is God's heart toward your child. Hang on to that. (laughs) All right. And the son said to him, he's going to get his I'm sorry speech out. Father, I sinned. (laughs) You're right about that, buddy. I sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cut him off right there. He didn't even allow him to apply for a job. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost. Now he is found. And they began to celebrate. When you come home from naked from partying, you have partied too hard. Get him some clothes. This guy has no shoes. This guy has no clothes. This guy is as disheveled as he can possibly be. He has gambled it all away. And the father sees him, falls on his neck and goes, we got to cover this boy up. We've got to cover his shame. We need to put a ring, a family crest on him to let him know where he belongs. Bring the best robe, by the way. Oh, and while you're out, kill the fatted calf too. Somebody go get that wine we have down in the cellar that we've been sitting on for far too long anyway. Because my son was dead. And now he's alive. And he was lost. And now he's back home. I think it's time to strike up the band and celebrate. And they partied, which is kind of ironic because I thought the boy had partied enough. Don't you think the boy in the moment went, Dad, I've had enough. (laughs) I have really overindulged. And Dad goes, well, I haven't. I'm not anti-partying as much as I just want to be in the middle of it. That's how you party in the name of the gospel. Put Jesus in the middle of everything. Otherwise, it's vanity. So they began to celebrate. Now the older son, Jesus, you know he glared at the Pharisees at this point. like, And the older one, you guys, <laughs> he was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So they're going for it. I didn't see much dancing in the Baptist church growing up, but it's right here in the Bible. Loud music dancing, celebrating, the party is going off, the whole town is there. The fattened calf, I mean, it is, they are throwing down. And the son says to one of the servants, what, are, what do these things mean? And the, and the servant said, well, your brother's come. Your father killed the fattened calf because there's that word, he received 
he warmly welcomed him back safe and sound. The heart of every parent is precisely that. I just want my babies safe and sound. And I don't imagine that you ever outgrow that feeling as a mom or a dad, no matter how old your kids get. I want them safe and I want them sound. And so the brothers, or the servants saying, he received him back, he welcomed him back, he's safe, he's sound. He was dead, now he's alive. But he, but he was angry, so now here's another emotion. He was angry. And he refused to go in. And look how good the father is here. His father came out and entreated him. And he answered his father, look, these many years I've worked for you, I've served you. And I never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might have a party or celebrate with my friends. You know, what have you done for me lately, Dad? Come to think of it. I mean, I've been here white-knuckling my obedience, grinding it out under Moses' law. I've been really good, come to think of it. I fast twice a week. I go to synagogue on Saturday. I'm a good guy, Dad. I haven't broken any of these commandments. But when this son of yours, this son of yours came, no longer calls him brother, this son of yours, what's wrong with you, dad? When he came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. I thought the son was reckless, but you, dad? You're out of control. Have you lost your mind? Don't you know what he deserves? All the rest, giving his dad the talk. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. Now he's found. What a great dad. Did you know that God loves not only the rebellious, licentious one, but he also loves the religious, legalistic one that's a little too over the top? That the father wants people to repent of rebellion and empty religion simultaneously. And that nobody's on higher ground before God. But every last one of us are called to repentance. And so for those who have just walked away from God and you're filling your life with all that the world continues to offer and you know you're rebelling against him, God's invitation to you is his kindness that does what? It leads us to repentance. And for those who puff themselves up week by week in religious obedience, thinking, well, I go to church and I read my Reformation study Bible and I listen to the right podcast and I'm at the right place at the right time with the right people and I've got my act together and I tuck my shirt in and God sees me in my private school in khaki pants and he thinks I am something special. Let me tell you, you're no better off than the rebellious one down at the Alamo last night. What we all need is an overwhelming dose of the grace of Almighty God. Oh, and by the way, for those that are tempted to read a passage like this and go, Alex, if you talk about that grace of God, someone's gonna take it a little too far. They might, they might, 
But if you rightly understand the grace of God, it does not put fuel in the tank for more rebellion. The grace of God leads us to holiness. The grace of God leads us to walking in the light and walking in righteousness. I'll tell you what, the prodigal son did not wake up the next morning with the fattened calf party behind him and think, man, my dad's a sucker. I'm gonna go out and do whatever I want again today. I bet you he didn't. I bet you the next morning he woke up and went, hey, dad, um, thanks. You're the best. Got any chores around the house you want me to do today? I'm happy to be home. I'm so glad I'm not a hired servant. Thanks for my room down the hall. Thanks for taking care of me and welcoming me back in. I really know I don't deserve to be here, but because you're you, I'm into whatever you're into. That's why John can later say his commandments are not burdensome to us. That once you rightly understand all that Jesus did in moving heaven and earth and all the couch cushions in order to find you, his valuable coin, to wake up to that reality does not make us go, my dad's a sucker, I'm just going to indulge in more sin. No way. To rightly understand Good Friday means holiness and obedience. Oh, it matters. But it's not a burden. Sure, denying the flesh is hard work. Crucifying the flesh is hard work. But compared to all that Jesus has done to bring us in to the happy family of God. Well, obedience becomes something we get to do. And over years of time with Jesus, we start to see it as something I kind of even want to do. (laughs) Isn't that good news? So church, today, as you think about the rebels that are out to sea right now, Remember, the kindness of God is what will lead them to repentance. And for those who find themselves maybe a little too puffed up in our religiosity this morning, allow the good news of the gospel to do its humbling work and to remind you that you're in the family of God, not because you obeyed like the older brother, but you're in the family of God because of the same grace that would save the unregenerate. All right. That's all I got for you. I love you. Thank you for listening. I want to invite uh, Walt now to come and lead us in our time of communion. And as he comes this way, I'm going to pray. Jesus, we love you. And we're grateful for the good news of the gospel. We ask that you would fill our minds and our hearts again with your spirit, with your word. Apply your good news to us in such a way that we might be changed, empowered, transformed, and enthusiastic about seeing people who don't know you come to faith in you. We pray for our own selves as we get distracted in our, sometimes our religiosity. Would you help us to stay deeply rooted in your death your burial, your resurrection, your ascension. And Holy Spirit, we invite you afresh and new. Thank you for separating our sins as far as the east is from the west and calling us the children of God. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your good name. Amen.